0: This is a work in progress with Blake and Tom, where we explore industries and the people that shape them. It's not about what you do, but how you do it.
1: I'm Levi, and uh, I'm a web developer. So, you want to hear, you want to hear you know, how I got into the industry?
0: Yeah, sort of a, maybe an origin story kind of thing, yeah. start so from the beginning when you were a little baby. When I was a
1: little bitty baby, I, my, I was handed my first computer keyboard. Now, I, um, so... I, was, I started out more as a hobbyist, um, you know, like the cool kids do with uh, computer programming. And uh, I my dad is a pastor, so growing up in church, there was always a need for, for things to be done. And so, you know, I took on that challenge, and we needed a church website. And this was like, I was young, like middle school, and I learned how to program HTML, um, which is the standard format of Coding that every website is kind of built on,
0: and that was a program at your school.
1: Yeah, it was just uh, like one of the computer classes. That was like a little section of the of the curriculum that we talked about HTML, and that opened my eyes to what programming was. Now HTML is very very light, but you could like type in some like tags and codes into a text editor, like literally WordPad on you know the old PCs, and save it as a particular file type, open it up in a browser and it like did things. You could make links and, you know, colors. And I was blown away by that.
0: Yeah, and I, it took input.
1: Yeah, exactly. I thought this is the coolest thing ever. So for fun, what I would do <laughs> is my sister, I have a younger sister, and we would, uh, I would build a fake like interface for some kind of, Computer system like you see in movies, and then I would pretend to be a hacker and hack into my own computer system in our like little, you know, playtime. And uh, because I, I was just so impressed that you could make something that looked like a real thing, and so that that hooked me. And I kind of went on from there just to watch tutorials and anything I could get my hands on to learn more of how to do it. And I built our first church website, which was. Uh, let me tell you, the 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 coolest thing that I ever did at that time was we were building a new building, and we had an artist rendering. And I thought, what if the main homepage of this website is just a big picture of that artist rendering of our new church, and the way you get into the website is to click on the front doors? Great idea. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was like... <laughs> Yeah, interactive design element. Yeah, exactly. As well, yeah. So yeah, I had to do some what was called like image mapping in HTML. I've never done it since, and I don't think it's really much of a thing now. But it, at the time, it was it was groundbreaking. I think we did have to have a conversation later where someone was like, "Maybe you should tell them that that's what they have to do to get in." You know, because a lot of people <laughs> were just like, "Nice, nice picture." Um, so after that, <clears throat> I took a break for a while, and then in college. I started getting into more deep programming um, where I learned how to actually work with databases and and different things that allowed me to do, um, actually building like system of a, of a website instead of just a you know nice pretty image with some clickable links, it, like would store information. Store data, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I worked on uh, learning that throughout kind of maybe late high school and college. And I took some programming courses in high school and college, but I sort of just in my own free time built some stuff. Our, at that time, our church had a daycare, and so I built a little like login system so that when parents brought in their kids, they could just type in like a four-digit passcode, and that would like check their kid in, you know, and have a, a registry of, time you know. Yeah, imp- exactly. And it out. never actually got implemented, but I built it and it worked, and so that was pretty cool. And then it was, while I was in college, I met a girl named Cassandra, and we had some classes together. She's a couple years older than me, and we hit it off. We were good friends. We had design. I went to to college for graphic design, and we kept in touch a little bit after she left college, and she went to work for a company making websites and as a designer, and then she decided she could do she could do it on her own and so she left and started um, kind of a freelance company building websites and reached out to me because she needed help with a flash animation which you know people will remember when flash ruled the world and i had also gotten into flash because that was like where the really cool stuff was happening all the animations and and stuff yeah and so she asked me if I could help her with a project and I helped her and then she was like, you know what I'm really looking for is someone who can do like HTML and um, CSS and that, that kind of stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more deeply what those, how that works. But I said, yeah, I can do that too. And so from there we started doing it um, and, you know, project by project and little by little until we ended up hiring people, moving into a space downtown. And now we, I've been doing that for 10 years and uh, just celebrated my tenure with the with her working as a developer f- um, just this last month. So that's kind of how I got into it.
0: Do you find most of the web developers that you work with or or that you know of do they normally come from a design background or a coding uh, background?
1: I don't think I've ever met a previous designer who became a programmer. Obviously, they exist, um, but I think that Where, was a, well.
0: You, I mean, you went to college I, as a designer. So. Yeah.
1: And and I honestly, I think um, that's probably a weird path to take because they they can be a little bit uh, of different brain functions. You know, like design is very visual, aesthetic, and programming can be a lot more. You know, like just procedural and you know, kind right. of. Uh, but both of those things really appealed to me, and I ended up liking. Um, like I still do design, not professionally, but you know, for fun. Um, and I and I'm pretty good at it, and I enjoy it. But it. As a professional, I like that programming has kind of a a more rigid like we need it to do this specific thing and at the end of the day if it does that specific thing then right. we're all happy but design you can build something that's beautiful and looks amazing and your client can look at it and be like nah don't like it let's try something else and that rarely happens with programming and i like that about it i like that it's a little more i'm in control and no one really has a strong opinion about that because they don't they don't have to see that, my side of it it either works or it doesn't exactly So yeah, that's.
2: So where did you go to school?
1: uh, I went to a private college in Wichita, Kansas called Friends University, and my mother works there. And so I had known from from a a young age that if I wanted to go to school there, I could go for free. And they just so happened to have a, a good art department, and I knew the people because my mom worked in the art department. And so probably from middle school on, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I never really looked back or thought twice and, and, uh, went, you know, not, no, no tuition. That's I, I, if you can, if you can go to school for free, I recommend it. It's the, uh, it's nice.
0: Would have you gone to college otherwise if it wasn't free or do you think?
1: Yeah. You... Here, here's the thing. I think this is maybe getting a little philosophical into my life, but I, I think if that hadn't been an option, I may have, I may have entertained a different path in my life, you know? It's weird how things happen, but I wanted to go to film school. um, And if I hadn't had free college with a good program that was one of my interests, I may have gone to a different college for a different interest. I don't know.
0: Or if you had gotten a scholarship somewhere, it clearly could have taken you somewhere else.
1: I never even considered programming as a, a field that I was going to go into. I sort of just happened into that.
2: And so when you first started that was early two thousands, you would say? Yeah,
1: when I first got interested in it. Yeah, it was probably yeah, probably two thousand two thousand to two thousand two was kind of where I, you know, was really starting to, to get into it.
2: So I would assume from that point to now quite a bit has changed.
1: Yeah, the the world of of the internet has changed dramatically. So if we if we think back to two thousand, uh, Facebook didn't exist, YouTube didn't exist, Google was two years old. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Amazon was just a few years old. Uh, eBay had just gotten started. So yeah, the world has
0: changed a lot. And how about the the character of a web developer as you know, kind of that stereotypical? I feel like when we were younger a coder or programmer was Mm -hmm. more of a geeky individual. It's now kind of become more of a hip kind of a cool thing. Like even that's changed.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of that has to do with public perception of nerds and geeks in general has changed. Um, When you, if you were really into comic books and all that kind of stuff, you were, you know, a little bit nerdy back in the day. I wasn't particularly into comic books, but that was sort of the realm of the nerd, and now it's obviously so mainstream that it's not uh, it's not viewed in the same way. And I think that's probably the case for programmers, engineers, all of that. Like the value that they bring has become more center stage in our lives because technology has taken such a central role in what we do with you know iPhones and and you know all of the, the computers that we all you know have. We appreciate how well-made they are now. And so we all understand that there are people behind that. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, there, don't get me wrong, there is definitely still a a large portion that um, fit into that nerdy, geeky kind of category, and myself included, but um, I don't think it's quite the same as it w- would have been 20 years ago.
0: With technology progressing, it usually makes things more readily available to people. So seeing that there's more developers out there, how do you... Stand out uh, above them.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think it, it's it can be really challenging because in in almost anything. Um, I'm also a musician, so like you you know you think oh I've I've worked really hard. I've gotten good at you know playing guitar or whatever. And then if you go online, you find someone who is. Ten years younger than you and twenty times better than you, and it's very discouraging. And that can be the exact same in in programming. Like you just see these people who are geniuses, and you think I'm never going to be that good. Um, but what I've what I've learned is you don't you don't have to be uh, unless you're wanting to work for you know the top brass of Apple or Google or something like that. There are so many jobs and opportunities that if you are just Averagely good at what you do Consistent, reliable And and you take it seriously um, Then there's so many Opportunities out there In this field right now Because it's just It's so in, in need Of having things built And stuff all the time So I, I don't know Necessarily how I would say to To stand out Other than working hard And being reliable Because like Maybe even more so in the design world, uh, there are so many people who are not reliable and they can be really talented, but you can't get them to call you back or they disappear, you know, for weeks and weeks at a time. And that certainly happens with with developers as well as we, I've worked with a lot of freelancers and it, the ones that are reliable are the ones that we continue to call back and use, and the ones who are a little bit flaky, we just drop. And so as is, is boring of an answer as that is, it's really just like be, be responsible and good at what you do and um, make sure people can count on you. And that's good enough usually.
0: When a user visits a website, can you walk us through what's happening on the back end?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the thing that people don't understand is that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And for obvious reasons, you want that to be behind the scenes because all you want to do is type in facebook.com and, you know, get your list of all the the things your friends are saying that you probably don't want to read. But what's really happening is is pretty complicated. So first, it, we know that when you type in something like, you know, facebook.com, that's a domain name. And that's like an easy thing to remember, obviously, Facebook.com. But that actually doesn't, uh, that, that's just like a, uh, a little bit of like a placeholder because what actually is happening is your browser says, hey, I have someone who wants Facebook.com. I don't know where to go to get that information. So it sends it to another server, another piece of, of equipment, a, a computer um, sitting somewhere that's hosting uh, DNS information, which is like network information. And it's saying, Hey, I've got this domain name, facebook.com. Where should I go? And so it has like a whole list of all that information stored. And it's like, okay, I can see here that you want to go to this IP address. So an IP address, most people have probably come across them, but they're They're typically uh, like a group of numbers separated by dots, like 186.155.121.3 or something like that. Much harder to remember than Facebook.com, and I think it was smart that they decided not to go that route. So when you type that in Facebook.com, it goes to a place, and it says, where where should I go? And it's like, oh, here's the number. So then it knows, okay, now I'm going to go to the next connection. And I'm gonna say, hey, I'm trying to go to this IP address. And they're like, you gotta go this way. So it goes to the next connection and it's like, hey, I got this IP address. And it's like, you want to go this way. And it follows the path all the way to the server that it's basically its home address is that IP address. So it finds its way to this server and it says, Hey, I have this request from this guy pulling up Facebook. And it needs, you know, it needs to pull up this page. And the server's like, oh yeah, I got you covered buddy let me hand you all the files you need and you can go assemble that so it's like cool thanks so it grabs that and then it journeys back to your computer and it says hey browser which is you know like google chrome or something or safari and it says hey browser here's all these things i here's all these things i got from the server for that website you requested and then the browser's like cool i know exactly what to do do this all day every day and it puts together the web page in a way that looks like you're expecting it to look and then boom, you're off and reading the thing. And then every time you reload or click something that takes you somewhere else, it does the whole process again, goes back to the server, asks for the things it needs and comes back to you and displays it uh, on your screen. And so all that's happening, you know, in fractions of a second. It's so, so fast. And so you're, you know, unaware of all of this travel. I mean, it can travel around the world and bring information back to you that fast it's it's amazing
2: where are those servers physically located
1: yeah so there are they're all over the place but there are like your your isp which is your internet service provider um, I'm not sure who your guys's ISP here would be. MediaCom. Okay, MediaCom.
0: Or AT and T. Or
1: yeah, so they're gonna have servers um, probably somewhere locally um, that are those DNS servers. So they're gonna direct that information, um, you know. And I'm oversimplifying all of this, of course, but and then that's gonna go to wherever usually a hosting company. So people are familiar with companies maybe like GoDaddy is kind of a big one. So they provide a hosting service. And all that really means is that they have hard drives, a huge chunk of hard drives that will store the files that make up your website. And they have server farms that will just be big warehouses that are just loaded with racks and racks and racks of servers, which are essentially just hard drives that are connected to the internet. And so those are all over the place and the bigger the company the more places they have those because as you can imagine even though we're talking you know basically light speed travel you can get a file faster if you know we're in Missouri if there's a a server farm that is hosting that information in Kansas City it's gonna get to me back and forth a lot faster than if it's in Hong Kong you know so um, they have duplicates and if you're a big company like Facebook or Google you have basically duplicate versions of your all of your information in places all across the world so that someone can get that information as fast as possible. If you're a little company like ours who's hosting a website, you can either work with a big company who will do that for you or you may just be hosted in one place. For us, most of our clients are pretty centrally located. We work with a lot of just local businesses and so we usually host somewhere like Dallas or Kansas City or something like that that's pretty, pretty close and, and it serves the purpose that it needs to. For a larger international client, we might go a different route so that other places can get it just as quickly.
0: So in that process of the website, really, where does your company uh, fall into place?
1: Yeah, so our job essentially is to build, you know, the website. And so a client will come to us and say, hey, we need a website. And we're like, boom, like you already... Step one, you've nailed it because that's what we do. And then they sit down, they tell us what they're looking for. A lot of people have, you know, an existing website. So we work from that because they have a lot of information. But, you know, we work with new companies also who don't have anything. And we talk with them. Um, so I'll, I'll give you just a small breakdown of our process as our company. I'm, I'm speaking only for our company. Um, right. But basically, a client comes in they tell us what they're kind of looking for we put together a little bit of a proposal for them and say here's what we think you need um and and that gets down you know to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of like specifically what kinds of pages do you want on your website so we do some like healthcare websites um, and they'll have like a section of their site where they have you know a lot of their doctors and you know nurses and they'll have their information and maybe even a little bio about them so We'll, we'll be in, in the process of saying, okay, we think you might want a section of your site to talk about your doctors. Then we're, you're going to want a section of your site to talk about the services you offer. You're going to want a section of your site where people can reach out and communicate to you you know, via some sort of contact form. Um, you're going to want maybe a little, what we like to call a portal that your employees can log into that's not available to the public where they have access to you know, maybe their, you know, healthcare documents and stuff that they need to, to fill out. They can download a form and fill it out and, and whatever. So we identify all of those things and put together an estimate of how much it'll cost to make all of that stuff. And then once they approve that, we start the actual planning process where we sit down with them over multiple sessions or emails or whatever, and get all the specific details of exactly what they wanna say, and we help them write it. We have a a copywriter that works for us that um, puts all that together, and she manages you know, kind of all of that content, figuring out where everything goes and creates a document of every single page that they're gonna want on the website and every single piece of information they need. And she does that not alone, but with our Creative director and with our designers. And then the designer then takes over kind of from there and begins to put together like a homepage design. So that first page you land on. Um, and so we're utilizing obviously their, you know, logo, which we may have designed their logo because we do that also. Or we may be working with an existing logo. And we build a web page that matches their brand and has all of that um, aesthetic to it that, that is pleasing but incorporates all of that information we've already determined needs to be there. And then once that's approved and they like how that looks, then we move on to all of the other pages and kind of put together, That's this is what these pages are going to look like. And then once all of that is done and approved, then we're ready to actually start building the website. And that's my department. So the first step is building the website, what we call like the front-end development. And that's where like I did in the early days, that HTML uh, comes into play. So HTML is really just a series of tags um, that tell what this piece of information is that you don't see when you're looking at the website, but the browser is aware of it. So one of the, the tags that you might have is called a headline tag. So this is really just like a title. So if you go to a a blog article and there's the title at the top of the page that says, you know, how to, you know, organize your closet, you know, whatever that's going to say that title, you don't see it, but it's actually contained within a little tag that says H1. Typically that's the, the biggest one. And so What's actually happening on the code side of that is the browser says, okay, I see that this is an h1 tag. Now I'm going to go to this other file that you've created, which is called a CSS file, which stands for cascading style sheets. And it's really just a list of rules that says, okay, if you come across an h1 tag, then I want it to be this size of font, this color, all of the specific style details of how to display it. And the browser does all that work. so." It says, okay, this title should look like this based on the information you've given me and it puts all that together and makes the website look the way you've told it to look. And so that's the first part of the backend process is just building the page so it looks exactly how you want it to look. Now at this stage, it doesn't do anything. If I click on a link, it doesn't go anywhere. If you know I fill out a form, it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't do anything. It just looks nice. Then we move to the second stage of development, which is really where I spend most of my time, and that's back-end development. Now what this is is where we connect all of those HTML files and style sheets to a full system that allows us to actually log in to a back-end system and click, you know, create new page and type in the title and all of that, and it generates that page from a database, instead of actually creating all these individual files. And so that allows our clients, once the project's over, they can just log into their website and add a new page or change text or do all of that without having to call us. And it creates this whole system. It's called a content management system or a CMS. And many people may be familiar with the most popular one, which is the one we use called WordPress. And so WordPress started out as a blogging platform Um, So, you know, people can make blogs, Um, but it's really grown into a full website um, system framework that you can use to build a website. So it has places where you can add new blog posts. It has places where you can add new pages, and then it has places where you can build custom things like um, we could add a section for, for instance, doctors. And so you could go and just click, you know, add new doctor and fill out their bio and all of that stuff. So... My job is to connect that front-end stuff with the back-end stuff and make that system work. And when I'm done, the website is done. It looks exactly like it's supposed to, and it functions exactly like it's supposed to. If I was really good, that would be it. But there's always the process of testing and making sure that I didn't miss anything or make any mistakes or that there aren't bugs. So that's the final Really processes we review the website internally, then we give it to our client to review, they go through everything, we test everything, and at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, we take all those files and we send them to the server, and it's just sitting there waiting for you to type in the domain name and it'll come get those files and bring it back and show you the web page.
0: What are some of the types of clients that you work with regularly?
1: Yeah, so where I live, which is in Wichita, Kansas. We have some industries that are really big there. Um, we have a lot of healthcare, which you guys have a lot of healthcare here, and so we do a lot of uh, healthcare websites. We have a lot of uh, airline industry or air, air, aircraft uh, industry, and so we do. We, we've done quite a bit of that, and and, and interestingly, because it's big in Wichita. We work with a lot of local companies, but we end up working for other companies who aren't in Wichita because it's the same industry. So, yeah,
0: worked. they see that you've done a site yeah. uh, for one of their competitors, and they come to you.
1: Exactly. Um, we also have a lot of manufacturing in Wichita, so we've done a lot of manufacturing websites. Um, and then we just, you know, have the random, you know, one-off. We have a, a, a website for. Uh, a, a lady who runs a, uh, basically a recipe website for, you know, eating, um, food that's, you know, fresh and made with real new and, you know, fresh ingredients instead of processed foods. Um, and so she has a whole thing. Um, we work for, uh, we've worked recently for a big fitness manufacturing company that makes fitness equipment for gyms. We've done, um, we, we've done a, a wide variety of, of websites.
0: Do different types of clients, uh, depending on the industry they're in, do they require different levels of security on the site and things like that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, this, is my, I mean, this is a good time to just talk a little bit about security. So some of the biggest weaknesses of websites are that you're transferring data between your computer and another server somewhere else. And that's a vulnerability because someone who has, you know, bad intentions can be waiting for that information to come by, grab it, and then and look at it. Now, if you're just pulling up a web page, that's no big deal. Typically, the problem is that when you interact with a website, you're usually giving it a lot of your personal information, and so that personal information is available to anyone who knows how to access that stream of 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 data moving. Now you might be thinking, I don't give a lot of personal information when I visit a website. Well, it depends on the website and it depends on the information. If you're going to Facebook, you're giving it a ton of personal information. If you're just visiting you know, a, a, a website of a store in town because you just want to see if they have something in stock, you may or may not, but you may be giving it personal information in the back end that you're not seeing because your browser has stored information um, in the form of what they call cookies which are just little pieces of data that you can't see i mean you can if you really want to but you don't see them typically and that information is just kind of hiding out in your browser and other websites can request some of that information and then use it so that's being transferred and you don't even necessarily know about that. And so that's something that's become a topic of importance in the last 5 or 6 years where Google is kind of at the the center of that where they do like cross site tracking. So what that basically means if you visit a website and you say hey, I'm like super interested in your product, you know, like a grill or something. And then you go to another website and there's an ad for that grill on the website. And you're like, you know, what's going on? Well, it's because they're tracking you in the back end. They know. They're watching you. Yeah, they know. Like we talked about the IP address of the server for the website. But your computer also has an IP address. Every computer has an IP address that's on a network. And so it it's basically can be tied to that and say like the, whoever's. Whoever's at this IP address is like super into grills. And then everyone who's advertising out there is like, hey, can you give us like a list of people who are like maybe really into grills? And then we can show them ads for grills. And uh, that's exactly what's happening. So all of that presents a security risk because that information is available to you know numerous um, entities. And so what you want to do is encrypt that information. You wanna say, when I type in something and retrieve data, I want that information to be encrypted, which is essentially, saying, take all of this data and then jumble it up in a way that is indecipherable, make it into a puzzle, essentially. And only the person who has the secret key to unscramble that puzzle can read this information.
0: So it keeps anyone from intercepting that information along the way between the actual website that's being uh, searched and and the individual.
2: But does it keep them from Intercepting it or right. being able to decode it? Precisely.
1: They can still intercept it, but it's just nonsense to them unless they have the secret key to, un- to decode it. And so that whole process of encrypting something um, is something called an SSL certificate, which is for it stands for Secure Socket Layer. And what that is simplified is essentially an agreement that your browser has with the server that's hosting the website so when you type in, you know, facebook.com, it goes to the 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 thing and it says, "Hey, we have a secret key and I'm going to send you a, a basically a secret piece of information that is going to allow you then to to encode and then also decrypt this information, but only you know it and I know it and anyone looking doesn't know it." And so you have to have that. So if you've ever visited a website and it pulls up, your browser might pull up and say, this website is not secure, you may you know may not want to proceed. That is because that website isn't using one of those SSL certificates, and the browser is just telling you your your information is basically available raw, and anyone who sees it can know exactly what it is. And so that is something that's changed in the last 10 years, where that wasn't, it's been around a long time, but it wasn't something that was on the forefront of people's consciousness, and now it is. And so that's a, a big deal. But there's so many layers of security beyond that. That's really like the the first layer of security. But beyond that, you you want to make sure that your server, that all this information is stored on, can't be hacked easily. And so there's, you know, I won't go into the details of all that, but there's lots and lots of things that you can do to make sure that those are secure. So to answer your original question, if you remember way back when you asked that. <laughs> um, yes, yes. Yeah, the, the original question is, is it does it differ from client to client? And it, and it does depending on the information. So some clients we have are healthcare, and that is protected by different laws than other information. So there's like HIPAA privacy laws. And so we can't store any of the information on our servers that they give that are any in any way health related so we don't want their private health information stored in our servers because then we're liable for it now we could do it but we'd have to follow a lot of really strict rules and so what we do is we basically store that information in someone else's server who specializes in storing that kind of information so that's a different a layer of complexity we have to deal with in in situations like that also we work with a couple of banks and so we don't manage their actual online banking side of it. We just handle the actual website. When you go and click login, it's gonna take you somewhere. You may not notice it, but it's taking you to a different company who's actually specializes in that banking software. Um, but still because it's a banking website, we have to follow more specific guidelines. Same with uh, e-commerce. If you're selling something and you have a credit card input, all of that, there's a different level of security you have to maintain.
0: And is that because of the type of business that that company does, or is it also applied to that .dot bank or the .dot org .dot gov things like that? As it's well? it's
1: both. Yeah. So the first part of it is it does just have to do with the kind of website that they are running so if you're selling stuff or if you are asking people for sensitive information that's one thing but as you mentioned if you have what's called a top-level domain which is dot bank or dot attorney or something like that rather than just dot com which dot com is a top-level domain but there are specific ones um, one that was around for a long time is dot gov and you know if you have a .gov website that it's a legitimate government website because you have to be verified as a government entity to get that kind of domain. And so it's that's a level of security in and of itself. You can trust a .gov. Joe Blow on the street can't go and buy a .gov domain name and put up a fake government website. And so it's not, certainly it's not as easy as that, or it's not as secure as that for other ones. but like dot bank, they want to make sure you are a bank and that you're representing a legitimate organization. So I can't just go make a fake bank website and buy dot bank um, because there are essentially auditors who are looking out for those and asking you, they're, they're auditing your website and making sure you meet security requirements and they're auditing your business to make sure you are who you say you are. So Those auditors, do they work for the government? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think at some level, there are those regulatory agencies that's, that have that. I I, I don't know specifically um, where that all fits in with the government, but yeah.
0: And have you had to deal with them personally on any of the sites you've done?
1: Yeah, so um, we currently um, host a banking website. We currently host a, a couple insurance websites, and we host some attorney websites. So we have .attorney.com. Bank dot insurance, and so all three of those we've had to deal with regulatory agencies to make sure that we're meeting requirements for those websites. So jumping back
2: a little bit to the cookies, why do they call them cookies instead of like crumbs?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I wish I had the answer to that, but I it makes more sense, right? Yeah, it does because you can follow a crumb trail of all the little yeah. pieces of information. I wonder, I, I don't know
2: um, where they, even the, the etymology of cookie comes from. Another question about those. So now websites where it pops up yeah. and asks you if you want to accept or decline. Right why do they highlight the accept in blue? It like makes you want to just go ahead <laughs> yeah. and press it. Is that yeah. on purpose? I said, well, it's
1: on purpose from the website. They okay. want you to accept their cookies because <clears throat> some websites re- really rely on the- those cookies to provide the user, the experience that the user wants. Um, so not all cookies are bad. Um, and um, I mean, I think that goes without saying, I'll you know, we all love cookies, but oh, yeah, um, but the the thinking behind it, so the reason you're seeing a lot of those notices is because the European Union has put some laws into place. It's called GDPR, um, and it went into place a couple of years ago that requires businesses to be more upfront with privacy information to let you know, hey, you're being um, tracked, tracked essentially. Or, yeah, they're at the very least, they're keeping a record of some of your personal information. And you have the right as a citizen to be aware of that, to be able to request that it's deleted or to say, no, don't do that. And so America has a few, but there are some things in the works to make it a little more strict like Europe has done. Um, but so any company that serves a website anywhere in the world might be available in Europe also. They've, they've just started making those notices because they are required by European law. And so that's why you see them on tons of websites.
0: So Apple just recently in their macOS browser, Safari, mm. allow the option to stop cross-site tracking. Uh, cookie tracking. Yeah, How does that play a role? Does it play any sort of effect on what you're doing?
1: So it doesn't really impact me in my job personally. What it will impact is some of the things my clients are able to do. Um, so if you are, say... Um, advertising on Facebook if you want to sell something and so you're putting ads on Facebook, this is going to impact Facebook's ability to generate as much data about everyone as it used to be able to generate. And so from an advertising standpoint, you may not have as good of information to work with, which is good and bad. I mean, it's good because people deserve to not have all of their information tracked without their knowledge, obviously. But it, it can be a little bit bad because I think we've all probably at some point been served an ad for something we didn't know about and was exactly what we wanted. And it was helpful. Like you were introduced to something that you wouldn't have otherwise known about. And so while that's rare for sure, it can be, it can be good. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with companies serving ads as long as they're relevant to me. And so the more information they have about my interests, the better they're, they are at serving those ads. And it serves them as well because they're not wasting money on people who don't care about their ad but it also comes with the trade off of now they know more about me and so they can do more with that information it's not always nefarious like these are just people trying to make money yeah. but there certainly are people out there who can use that information to manipulate to, manipulate, to change you know, opinion obviously like as we've seen in in politics it can be used to to influence people in one way or another because they know if, if they are putting out ads for politics, they know what you're into and they can basically build a, a demographic of people who all are into the same types of things and make judgments about what you believe. And while it's not true on every individual basis, you can pick, pretty much figure that out in the broad scale of like okay people who are let's just say buying confederate flags is is a that's a really obvious one but you can you can say like okay if people are buying confederate flags then we know we can ascertain what they might be into politically and then we can target our information to them now obviously that's a really broad example but there are lots of other things that they can detect from your spending habits like you can i think it, there was a story, I, I wish I had recently read it so I could give you more detail. But there's a story about a company, I think it was Target actually, that had sent um, and a set of coupons to this house for like baby stuff, like, you know, prenatal, um, all, all kinds of things that a, a pregnant mother would be interested in. And the, the guy at the, at the house was really upset because he's like, you know, why you, you know, why you keep sending us all this like baby stuff? We're not, you know, my wife's not pregnant. There's, you know, nothing going on. Turns out, and I, I may be getting the details of this a little bit wrong, but it turns out his daughter was pregnant and she didn't even know it herself at the time, but Target's algorithms had figured it out based on various other things that she had been doing. And, yeah, so it's crazy the things they can tell just by your habits. And, of course, they're not tracking you as an individual. No one's sitting there looking at your information. It's all in the system, and the system's like, okay, I'm recognizing a pattern, and I'm going to make a prediction based on that.
0: Uh, Have you ever worked as an instructor um, in your field? I
1: haven't done anything one-on-one, but I have mentored other developers who have worked for us who are less experienced. So um, in the time I've been working, we've had two primary developers um, besides myself, and both of them were relatively inexperienced compared to me, and so I was able to you know, help them out, um, understand the specifics of exactly what we do. Because the thing about programming is the, the, the general... Basics of it extend across the entire spectrum. If I understand a little bit of programming, I understand a little bit of programming that goes all the way to every like software development, AI, all of that stuff is built on the same fundamentals. But if I in making websites as opposed to apps for a, a phone or something, there's very specific, there's different programming languages and there's different approaches to storing data, all of that stuff that's really specific. And so I've been able to mentor other developers to build websites in the kind of the specific way we do it and serve our clients in a specific way. And also just, you know, outside of that, I've helped friends and family who had little projects, um, you know, here or there to, to do that as well.
0: Uh, What would be some questions you would ask someone that you're potentially hiring just to kind of understand their level of experience as a web developer?
1: Yeah, so I'd probably start by trying to get them to let me know a little bit about the specific languages that they're familiar with. So the main languages I work with, now this doesn't go for every web developer because there are different platforms or different things that they do but in the world that i inhabit we use html and css that's across the board for web every website uses those so html is that basic structure of all the content that appears on the page so it tells you know what's a title what's basic text what's a menu item all of those things The CSS is a collection of styles that basically say when you come across the title, make it look like this. When you come across this thing, make it look like this. Those are the the fundamentals. Then beyond that is JavaScript, which you may have heard of JavaScript throughout your internet usage as well. But that is a little bit different because instead of being served from the server, so all of those other two... Um, are also browser-specific. So when your, your browser reads that HTML and displays it, it reads that CSS file and displays it, and it's also reading JavaScript. So what JavaScript can do is manipulate those things on the page. So... If you've ever clicked on, say, an accordion where it had a, a question, like a frequently asked questions, maybe, and it had a question, you clicked on it, and then it drops down and kind of animates and opens up and displays more information. That animation is controlled by JavaScript. It's it's basically your browser um, reads a set of instructions, and the instructions would go something like, whenever somebody clicks on this button, perform these tasks, and so. That doesn't reload the web page. That just displays it. And so I'd want to know someone's experience level with JavaScript because it's a pretty popular way to create those kind of rich interactions that people can have with a web page. And it it goes very deep. It can do all kinds of cool things. Um, But you want to kind of get the idea of their comfort level with it. And then there are specific libraries within that. So JavaScript is a, a pretty strong basic language, but it's old and it has um, a syntax, which the syntax is just like the specific way you type in the, the, the language you use to type in JavaScript can be a little bit cumbersome um, and a little bit um, hard to read someone else's stuff if you're not very experienced. And so other people have created what's known as like a library. So they basically say, okay, I'm going to take all of that hard stuff and I'm going to write basically shortcuts that make these things easier and in more of a human readable language. And so the big popular one is called jQuery. And that takes JavaScript and makes it a little easier to use and a little more accessible. And so that's a very popular um, thing. So I want to know... What do they know about HTML and CSS? That's a standard. They should know how that works right away. And I want to know their level of JavaScript experience and maybe jQuery. And then the final major piece is going to be PHP, which is another language that you would have to know. And that is a server-side language. So those others have been handled by your browser. But this is handled by your server. So what that means is when I... Um, you know, type in a web page and it goes, I told you it goes and finds the server where all those files are held. It's actually going to ask the server to do some things before it returns those files. It's not just going to return the files in the state that they're saved. It's going to say, okay, the, the user specifically needs the information in this you know particular way. So the server is processing those files, reading the code and delivering exactly what, the code is telling it to and then when it comes back to the browser it's already done the server did all the work but once it gets back to the browser the browser does the work of displaying the HTML and CSS and then running that JavaScript so the PHP runs on the server the other stuff runs on your browser and what that means is that on the server is also where the database is is held so the database is gonna have it's essentially a spreadsheet and it has all of the information for every page so it's gonna say this page has this title and this text and all you know all that specific information and so when it's processing that that php file what your what you type into the code is i want you to output the title of the page. I don't know what the title of the page is when I'm writing the code. I just know I want the title of the page. The database is going to deliver that information and all that's handled on the server. I know it's a little bit of specific detailed information, but that's the kind of stuff that a programmer who's making websites has to know how to do all of that or they're not going to be useful because that's that's the job. So those are the kind of things I really want to know. Do they know how to do HTML and CSS? Do they know how to do JavaScript and probably some jQuery? Do they know how to program in PHP? And then the little thing beyond that is they really need to know how to work with databases as well, because that's where it's stored. So there is, there's a pretty broad skill set that uh, it, it translates to other areas of programming, but these are the specific ones to how we make websites.
0: Uh, what are some of the tools that you use to do your job? I'm, I'm sure a lot of them are more software-based and not as much of a physical tool as what some other industries would have.
1: Yeah, actually, I just have a magic button, and I push it, and it does exactly what I want. At least that's what clients think sometimes. <laughs> no, I, uh, I use... So personally, I'm a fan of, of Macs, and so I have a, a, an iMac at my office. Because of COVID, I've been working from home, so I've been working off of my MacBook Pro, um, but you need a computer, and that's uh, obvious—you know, an obvious thing. But I per- personally like to work with Mac, and then there's a software on the computer um, that's specifically made for Mac that I use called Coda, which is actually. Um, going out out and it's being replaced with a new software by the same company called Nova, but that's still in beta testing right now. But essentially what that is, is it's a code editor. So it, it's where I actually type in all the code. It's like, it's like a word processor, like Word essentially, but it's built specifically for typing code. And so the things that are unique about that is that it will do color coding on the code. So if I type in a particular type of, of code, It knows, okay, every time I see this kind of code, make it pink. And every time I see this kind of code, so like within code, you can type in comments that are really just for the programmer to, you know, remember what this section does. It's not displayed to the user, so it'll make that like a light gray or whatever. So when you're looking at the code, it's easy to spot what you're doing. It also does indenting. So you might have a block of code that says this is a container that is gonna contain all of the the biography information for the doctor or whatever. And then inside of that you're gonna have another little container that says this is gonna contain the name of the doctor and then this is gonna contain their education. And so all of that is kind of indented so you can see it without it getting too jumbled. And so this software will do that. The software will also connect to the server where the files are stored. And so you can build a website with the files completely stored on your computer. But your computer doesn't natively know how to process some of those those files, like the PHP files. You need a server to process PHP files. So we also use a server emulator, essentially, on our computer that pretends like it's, it's the server hosting your website. So it we can process all of those files. Um, but then you also need to connect to that server with a, a process, which is called like a file transfer protocol. And <clears throat> that, you know, connects and, and, and does that. So that's really the, the core of my work takes place within this one piece of software. But beyond that, I also use like Photoshop um, occasionally because, you know, websites have a lot of images and they need to be size to a specific size so they fit into the spot where they need to fit. And um, so we'll do that. And you wanna optimize the image, which basically just means, Mm -hmm. if you want your webpage to load quickly, you don't want it to wait to download these large files. You want those files to be as small as possible. So you make little tweaks um, into how the file's compressed or whatever to make it as small a file size as possible while still looking nice. So I use Photoshop typically for that. there's other little pieces of software here and there. Uh, our designers use a program called Sketch, uh, which is essentially Photoshop for web design um, or app design. So it has a lot of really specific things that make it easy to build uh, and design websites. And so that's something I use also because the files that our designers create are in that program. And so if I need to look at you know what they're doing, I also use Illustrator, which, Sketch can do the same things that Photoshop and Illustrator do, but because I'm not a web designer, I don't use Sketch as my main source, and I I grew up and learned on Photoshop and Illustrator, so that's just a little bit of me being an old man and using the things that uh, I'm familiar with without uh, having to completely relearn it all. Um, But you could do all of that within Sketch. Sketch is a very cool program. Um, And yeah, so in an internet connection, with, with just a computer... A uh, code editor, maybe an image editor, and an internet connection. You could you could do my job. It, there are other little bits and pieces that make it easier, um, but you could you
2: could do you could do it. On average, how long would you say it takes to develop a website from the beginning? To- so
1: from the very beginning until the website is live and and users can go visit it, it it depends obviously on the exact site, but I would say our process takes between two to four months is typically by the time you come to us, we do all the planning that usually takes kind of about a month of back and forth because people are busy. um, And most of the, you know, like our job is to make the website, but the people who are buying the website have their own job. That's not making a website. So they, they have to do their own job as well as, as working with us. So, that takes about a month of planning, and then there's about, I would say, about a month of design as well, um, where it you know kind of goes back and forth. And then there's about a month of, of development, so a couple weeks for that front-end development, and then a couple weeks for the back-end development, and then usually a week or two of, of reviewing and testing and making sure that everything looks good, and then we go live. That's for like a fairly mid-size, just a local business kind of website. For a large international website or a complicated site that has a lot of data, it'll take longer. And then sometimes we'll make little one-page sites that, um, you know, we could probably get all the way through that in just a few weeks. Um, The the other problem is, is that we're not only working with one client at a time. So things are a little bit spread out based on scheduling and when we can fit those things in. And we sometimes will slow things down because we take a little longer to do it than we anticipated, and sometimes our clients slow things down because we're waiting on information from them that they haven't had time to put together and, and sit down. So it kind of it, it varies, but um, we like to try to keep the project within just a couple, a couple to a few months because um, it's a good enough time to do a good job but make you feel like you accomplished something and it's not dragging on.
2: So you've been with the company for 10 years, you said? Yeah. How many websites do you think you've guys developed over the past 10 years?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I know that there's a specific number I could look up probably, um, but over 200 websites. I would say we're probably in, in close to 250. That, and I've probably personally worked on 100 to 150 websites um, that I've personally developed. The way we work... Um, which we have developed over time, but we typically work in small teams within our our organization. So our director, um, uh, our creative director, which is Cassandra, who started the business originally, she is on basically every project. She helps out making sure that the whole thing looks good. She works with the clients on the sales side of it and makes sure that they're happy. And so she deals with basically every client. Then we have a content manager, who it you know, gathers all that content and does copywriting and makes sure that all of the content that we want. And she typically works on every website as well. But then once she's done and it actually goes to a designer, we have two teams. So we have a designer and a developer and then another designer and a developer who we typically work with each other on every project. But depending on scheduling, sometimes I'll work with a different designer and you know vice versa. But um, so that's typically, how it splits out and so um you know yeah so i've worked on probably you know 100 to 150 of those websites where the other developers have worked on the other you know 100 or so um there was a time when i was the only one um and so i worked on every single project and that that was a lot so
2: other than the church is there one that you are most proud of or that you think (laughs) that, that you're the most excited that you did
1: yeah um i'm trying to there's there's uh there's that bank it's just a local bank but it's a big deal in our community because it's a well-known um it's a well-known company and so i i think probably those are the ones where it feels good to you know tell your friends and family like hey i'm working on the website for this company that everyone knows most of our websites are slightly smaller niche businesses that the average person may not have heard of. Um, but when we get to work on one that's well known and recognized, it's very cool. And it's very cool to like see your your work in the wild like you're like at a friend's house and they mention you know some company that maybe isn't as well known and you're like, hey, I made their website <laughs> and then you know so those are that's always a good. When I was a designer, I built a couple of or designed a couple of billboards and to like see those driving down the street I'm like I made that that was really cool, so yeah, that's probably what I'm the most proud of um is it, something that is recognizable.
0: Do you see your job ever being replaced by automation or
1: yeah, for sure um <laughs> I think. It's not going to happen immediately because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of the human touch in problem solving. But as AI gets better, um, I don't know that it, I don't know that my job will, will be completely replaced. But it, the the necessity for as many of us will probably go down over time. So already, you may be familiar if you've ever listened to any podcast or watched any YouTube video. You're aware of Squarespace, and they advertise everywhere. Uh, are they a sponsor today? Is that... No, not yet.
2: Uh, uh, well, this episode
1: <laughs> is sponsored
0: by Squarespace. Yeah. Yeah. It's a
1: work in progress, yeah, let's <laughs> say. That. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> that's the name of the show. Uh, yeah. No, so Squarespace, <clears throat> they, they've built a system, like other companies have. They're not the only one, obviously, where all of the programming is basically already done. And then you're just you know, putting in the information you want and it outputs it. So there's not an individual programmer working on your website when you work for Squarespace, but they do have a team of developers who have already built that system. So on one hand, they're for the number of websites that they have, which, you know, they have millions of websites hosted on their platform, they didn't need hundreds of thousands of developers to do that. They can have a team of 150 or 200 developers that are full-time making the system. So in that way, yeah, it's... It's already getting to the point where you don't necessarily need to hire a, a individual company to build your website. You do that for one ease of maintenance like you don't have to deal with that problem if something arises, you just call the people that you pay and they take care of it for you. Right. And I think people forget that a little bit like let's just say in in website hosting you could go to GoDaddy and and buy a hosting package for like four dollars a month and you know it you're like that you know no big deal and uh, or you come to us and we charge you know somewhere around a hundred dollars a month so it seems like whoa that's so much more money and it is but it's not immediately obvious what that difference in price gets you. And the difference in price is that if you are if you wake up one morning and you're getting emails from your customers that your website's down, if you're just hosting with GoDaddy, you've got to get on the phone and sit on tech support and try to talk to someone who's trying to explain things to you that you don't understand and you're trying to you know click through. Or they might tell you, we're going to have to open up a ticket and it's going to be 24 to 48 hours before we get back to you all of that kind of stuff. And so you're just sitting without a website. But if you are hosting with a company, you know, like ours, um, you just make one phone call and say, Hey, our website's down. Or they might already know. We would already probably know because we have full uptime monitors checking all of our websites. So we get a notification if the website's down. Typically, depending on how it goes, uh, it might there might just be an error on the page. It's not really unavailable. It's just weird. But Anyway, you make that one phone call or send an email and then we take on the burden of sitting on tech support or, you know, dealing with the problem. And so everything's great when you're paying for cheap stuff until something goes wrong. And then then you're really glad that you have someone who knows what they're doing to handle it for you and you don't have to take time out of your, your schedule to deal with that.
0: What are some of the bigger leaps uh, in the industry that you've seen since you started?
1: Yeah, so... Like like I talked about earlier, I started in you know the early two thousands, but that, I wasn't professionally working then. Um, but even at the time, like I mentioned, Flash was a really big deal, and so you'd go to web pages and they were you know animations and crazy things, and Flash was was the it game, and uh, that's gone away in you know, like completely. You don't see Flash anymore. There, there was a lot of reasons for that, um, but essentially, it wasn't the most efficient way of, of doing things. And so it got replaced by other stuff. Um, but I would say there, there are, you know, maybe three major things that have changed since I got in the game. The first major thing that changed is the introduction of what's known as web 2.0. You may have heard that around at some point in your life. But what that means is in the early days, websites essentially were their own thing. And if you wanted your company to have a website. You built it, It it, that was it. People visited it, it was great. And that was, you know, everyone was happy. And then along comes like Facebook, YouTube, all of that. And they have all of this information that you might want to integrate or connect with in your website. So on a very basic level, Web 2.0 was a way for websites and companies to exchange data with each other in a way that was easy to do. So there are things called like application programming interfaces, or they're called APIs. And that's a way, a very formalized way of you requesting a specific piece of information from another database or company that has that information. And they'll return that data to you, and then you can use it on your website. So this comes into play in things like using Facebook to log into other web pages. So if you visit a website and it's like, do you want to log in using Facebook or Google or Apple? Um, so the people who programmed that web page are using an API to connect with Google and say, hey, Google, I want to, you know, use this information from this user. And then usually that will ask you as a user, hey, do you want to share your information with them and let them use it? And you say yes. And then now they can connect to a limited set of data. And so that has expanded even to the point where websites can do things like, you know, connect with your home, your smart home stuff and can tell you, um, you know, whether your garage door is open or or all of that. And so that's all a way of, of... Data is completely interconnected now in very structured and organized ways that make it easy for everyone to know how to approach accessing that data. Rather than every single company having their own way of sharing that data, there's like a standardized way. Um, There are multiple standardized ways, but they're at least somewhat standardized. And so that was a huge change in the internet, because now it wasn't just your website. You had access to all this data from other people. So that was a huge change. The next major change came with mobile. So when smartphones became really popular at the end of the, the, the aughts you know, 2007, the iPhone came out. And that really changed the game, because the iPhone had basically the first usable, really usable browser on a phone. And I don't know if you've picked up an original iPhone or anything close to it. They were so tiny. I don't know how we were doing anything on those things. Um, But, yeah, so you had browsers on there. Well, all of a sudden, if you have a full-fledged website, it is really hard to navigate on a small phone screen. And so at the time, it was kind of, it became a little bit trendy to make a mobile version of your website, which is like a stripped down version that when your phone accesses it, it says, hey, by the way, I'm a phone. If you could give me the phone version, that'd be super. And uh, it's like, yeah, for sure, phone, here's the phone version. Um, That has been replaced now with what they call responsive design. So you can test this on websites if you want. You pull up your browser window, make sure it's not full screen, just you know, a window that's open up. Pull up a website and then drag from the size of your screen to smaller. And as it gets smaller, things will rearrange and, and still look good all the way down to a little narrow, like phone like screen. And you know, stuff will restack. The menu will sometimes collapse and go into like a little hamburger menu where you have those little three lines. Um, and then all of those things change as you make your website narrower or wider that's called responsive design so what's happening when you pull up your phone is it just is like hey hey my browser's like this many pixels wide what are you going to do about it and it's like no worries already accounted for that so it just displays it just like that and uh so that's great that that was not the standard when i started working 10 years ago it was certainly around and people were doing it but it wasn't a requirement um now it's a requirement. If you have a, a website that's not able to be used on a phone, then you're not in the game because about two thirds of browsing happens on phones now, and so or or tablets or some you know mobile devices. So that that was the that was a huge change for us. And now every website we do is completely mobile compatible. The last major change has been in the security world, um, as. Internet has gotten more and more popular and is basically used for everything. So has the people who want to take advantage of that and exploit that. And so when I first started out, we rarely had security problems. People think of hacking in terms of like, you know, I have a little bakery and I make a website and I, we make a website for their, for this person's little bakery. And they're like, why, why would anyone want to hack into my website and take, you know, my information, you know, my bakery information or whatever? Well, they don't, they don't want to, they don't really care about your stupid bakery. <laughs> what they're interested in is the fact that you have people visiting your website and they can take advantage of that traffic. And so what, or you have resources like your server and they'll take advantage of that. So if they can hack into your website, they don't care about your stupid bakery. What they care about is these people visiting the site. They're taking their information as it's, as it's coming in, or there might be using your server to send emails that are spamming other people. And so if, the internet service providers recognize something like that and they shut it down. They're shutting down your bakery server. They're not shutting down this person's hacking server, you know? So they're utilizing things like that. They're also not actively looking for your bakery website. They are sending out basically intelligent bots that are crawling the web and just looking for vulnerabilities. And so it's sort of like having a, you know, like a security, um, little sign in your yard that says this house is protected by whatever it's a little bit like that where they're just looking around for houses that don't have that and then trying the door and seeing if it's unlocked and so back in the day we didn't worry all that we, we obviously should be worried about that at every level but it wasn't as big of a of a thing but now a bot can come by your door see you don't have any security try your doorknob and if you left it unlocked then you are super vulnerable so that has been a huge game changer, especially in the realm of passwords. Like um, if, you don't, if you're using the same password for every website that you use, if someone hacks one of those websites, they're going to they're gonna get your email information and they're going to get your password. And you think, okay, who cares? That's just for that website. I'll just change it fine, but now that information's in a database that they're going to try on a million websites. And if you've used that same information on any of those other websites, bada bing, bada boom, they're into those as well. And so that's why they warn you not to use the same password for every website or everything that you do, because if one gets hacked, now they're going to try that same information everywhere else. And so that, that that's a, a huge vulnerability, which I guess this takes me back a little bit to the tools that we use. Another big tool that we use is a uh, password keeper for all of our clients' passwords. So that basically every password we use is unique and it's a random string of characters. And then we have one place that we can go and find all that information. So I recommend, is this, is this brought to you by Dashlane today? Is that who's... Is that who's serving this or 1Password? Yeah. 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 Okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So uh, just to kind of wrap this up, do you have any fun facts that are web related or?
1: Yeah. So let's, let's see. Um, Here's one I I recently found that was kind of shocking. So we all use Google on a regular basis. Um, Unless you're the Bing people, then just shut off the podcast. What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. Bing's fine, I guess. I don't know. I've never used it, but uh, Google is something we all use. And you don't necessarily think about this, but it takes a certain amount of, of like actual energy to handle you searching something on Google. So when you type in a, a Google search, it's going to a server. That server requires power. It has to do things. And so I think um, someone figured out or Google released that each Google search takes like 0.000. 000 2 or 3 kilowatt hours of of energy which is nothing. I mean that's that's nothing. But then when you think of how many Google searches happen, I think the number I read this might be a couple of years old, but it's about like 40,000 searches per second. So that's happening like every single second. Like as I've been talking, we're reach you know we're nearing a, a million just in the last couple of seconds I've been talking. Like it's it's it grows exponentially. So when you add all of that up, that takes about 12 kilowatt hours, uh, of energy per second to, to serve up Google search results. Now to translate that into something that's understandable, 12 kilowatt hours can run a ceiling fan for about a month continuously. So it takes that much energy per second to serve up Google search results. So Google's consuming a ton of energy. And, you know, that's, of course, why they're pushing so hard, especially Apple. You hear more about it from Apple. But all of those big server companies, it takes a lot of energy to run those servers. And so they're trying to switch to, you know, like solar power or whatever they can because it just takes so much energy to run at that scale.
0: Yeah, and that's just one of Google's many, many services. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and I I read it. I don't have any specific information on on. On how it works but you know google does those little animations on their home page like their logo yeah. is like animated and those take a ton of, inf- of of power also to run so every time they run one of those you they have to like consider like what is the you know impact that this has because any little any little change is 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 something that
0: will increase processing on the servers and therefore increase their energy yeah. intake yeah
1: Speaking of Google, I I can tell you a little bit about how Google works. So if you are searching something on Google, you you might be tempted to think Google is going out and looking at every single web page really, really fast and trying to find exactly where your information is. Well, that would never work. That would take so long. There are millions and millions and millions of websites, and they couldn't possibly do that. So what Google is actually doing is in the background all the time, they have little robots you know, virtual robots that are out there searching every single website. And then they make what's called an index of all of that. So it's sort of like if you have, let's say your kitchen, you've got plates and bowls and cups and spices and equipment like pots and pans. You have all these things in all of these cupboards and, and cabinets. And if I if I walked into a brand, a kitchen I've never been into, and then someone came up to me and they said, hey, can you bring me some uh, chili powder. I would have to go search through every single, you know, cupboard until I found chili powder. I would have no idea where to even start. I might make some smart guesses, but other than that, I'm just looking at everything. It would take me forever. If instead you said, hey, can you bring me some chili powder? And here is a little book that breaks down everything by category and tells you which cupboard that thing is in. So I grab that, flip to the little tab that says Spices. I swipe my finger down the page, look at Chili Powder, and it says it's in the second cupboard from the left. Boom, I found it so much faster. So that's what Google's doing. They're generating an index, and they're basically keeping information of where everything is, and then when you search for something, they're not looking at those websites, they're looking at their index, which is built in an incredibly genius way that allows them to return millions and millions of results for that specific thing in fractions of a second. Google tells you how long it takes to do it, which is something they're proud of, which is why they still show you how fast. And you know, think of in the last 22 years since Google's been around, The growth in, in the amount of pages they have to search is insane, and yet they're still delivering results super fast. And not only are they delivering results super fast, they're taking into account who you are and your specific interests and needs to deliver the results to you even better they know where you live and so they're saying if you search for a bakery they're going to return results for bakeries near you rather than just any bakery in the world
0: this podcast is brought to you by google yeah. google
2: yes google well, who does google pay because everybody has to pay somebody right so what are they paying for i would say the majority
1: of the cost that google has is going to be in servers they're paying those companies but maybe they bought those those things themselves so they're paying companies who produce those machines that they're you know running and then of course they're paying for labor for all the programmers and people that work for them and probably have a huge electric bill oh yeah how does that even work yeah yeah i mean basically every every you know building that they have has its own utilities that have to be you know updated and paid for. And of course, and
0: ISP, I mean, they're obviously paying internet yeah. service providers from where, where they're at as well. And
1: they're paying for, you know, beanbag chairs and stuff for their offices and all the fun stuff that they do. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot, I've never been to Google's campus. Um, but I would, I would love to, to visit. obviously I'd rather visit Apple's campus first because I'm an yeah. Apple fanboy and I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but then, you know, then Google.
0: well, Thanks for coming on, Levi. Thanks for sharing your wealth of web knowledge.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure, man.
0: Greatly appreciated.
1: Also, like hearing my myself um, talk. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's probably my my favorite. Perfect part of this. guest.
2: The yeah. perfect
0: <laughs> guest. Well, for everybody at home, remember: it's not what you do, but how you do it.